Good morning. If you have your Bibles, I invite you to turn with me to Matthew chapter 8. And if you don't have a Bible, as always, I, I mention this often, but we have these Bibles that we keep in the seats there in front of you. And if you don't own a Bible or you would need, if you need it, take it, uh, we'll replace it. That could be our gift to you today. And we're just going to press into who Jesus is and the purpose is to fuel our faith and to encourage us and to give us strength for this week and also to warn us against uh, preferring anything to Jesus Christ. So our text today, Matthew chapter 8, verses 28 through 34. The word of God says this, and, and when he came to the other side, to the country of the Gadarenes, Gadarenes, two demon-possessed men met him coming out of the tomb, so fierce that no one could pass that way. And behold, they cried out, What have you to do with us, O Son of God? Have you come to torment us before the time? Now a herd of pigs was feeding at some distance from them, and the demons begged them, saying, If you cast us out, send us away into that herd of pigs. And he said to them, Go. So they came out and went into the pigs, and behold, the whole herd rushed down the steep bank into the sea and drowned by the waters. The herdsmen fled, and going into the city, they told everything, especially what had happened to the demon-possessed men. And behold, all the city came out to meet Jesus, and when they saw him, they begged him to leave their region. Let's pray. Lord, I, I pray that your Holy Spirit would be moving in our hearts and our lives today, that as we hear the word, as we press into this and think about this carefully, that you will, you will help us by your spirit to value what is infinitely valuable, that we would not prefer anything less, that we would not abandon Christ for pigs. Oh Lord, I pray that you would root out our idols, these things that creep up in our hearts and kind of take over and we bow down to with our affections and our love and our time and our imagination and our decisions and our bodies. Help us, Father, to see things as they really are. And I pray that through your word, as we continue to see who Jesus is and as he is revealed in the Gospel of Matthew, I pray that we would we would cast down our idols and bow before our Savior. Lord, for any who come this morning without faith, I pray that today you will help them to see the gospel, help them to see the goodness of Christ, the one who heals and restores and makes whole and gives life. And I pray that they would leave here embracing the gospel, that we are sinners before you in desperate need and you have sent the Son of God, Jesus Christ, to pay our sin penalty on the cross. And that we need only to trust in the work of Christ, to trust in the finished work that Jesus did. Help me, I pray. I pray that you would give me uh, just good unction here, as it were, for your people. May you be glorified in what we do. May, you be, may Christ be exalted. And give me the clarity of word to be able to do that here. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, as the story goes, a wealthy grandfather was spending a day with his young grandson. 
And he had this idea. He was a very wealthy man. I'm sure this is fictional, but I read it somewhere as if it wasn't. But um, he was wealthy. One day, he spent this day with his grandson. So he comes to his grandson, uh, and they're sitting across the table there, and he puts a $50 bill here, and then he puts a penny on this side. And he says to his grandson, I, I, I want to be generous to you, and I want to let you choose how generous I will be. Okay, so you're going to choose the level of generosity I'm going to demonstrate to you. So you can either have this $50 bill, like it's yours, imagine a $50 bill and how, how much you could spend with that, especially when you're young and like the things you like only cost a couple of bucks, <laughs> you know, like this is really, really good. You can have this or you can take this penny. But if you, if you take the penny that grandfather explained, then the next day I will give you two pennies. And then the following day after that, I will give you four pennies. And then the following day after that, I will give you eight pennies and then 16 and then, and so on. It will double. The amount of money I will, I will give you will double every day. I'll give you money every day. It'll double every day for 31 days. You can choose right now which level of generosity you'd like to accept from me. Well, that boy was no fool. He smiled from ear to ear and he grabbed that $50 bill and stuck it right in his pocket. He was happy. Uh, he, 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 the grandfather smiled too, um, patted the boy on the head, took his penny, put it in his pocket and left the room. The boy had his 50 bucks, but he missed out on the $10.7 million that his grandfather would have given him on day 31 or the $5.3 million that he would have given him on day 30. I don't even know how much money this would add up to. Maybe you could do the math. In fact, if somebody will text me the answer to that, not why we're here today, but I will give you, the first one who texts me, I'll give you a free book. So figure out how much exact, because it's not, it's cumulative, like every day he gave him money, right? So 10.7 was the last payout. But this boy had his $50. And obviously he chose based on what he believed was most valuable, Right? I mean, before him, he's looking at a penny and he's looking at a $50 bill. Penny doesn't buy you anything in this world we live in. $50 buys you something. And so he thought, this is valuable. This is more valuable. But in reality, it was far less valuable. The, the penny deal was vastly more valuable. The, the boy preferred what, and valued what was less. To a much greater degree, in fact, to an infinite degree... That is what we see in this passage. And what I, what, I, what I think is intended by Matthew, the writer, and by Jesus, the orchestrator, and by the Holy Spirit who inspired it all, for us to see. The townspeople preferred what was less, their status quo, their stable economics, to what was infinitely, infinitely more valuable, the Son of God. They saw what Jesus had done. They saw how he had cast out these demons. They saw how he healed these two men who were grossly afflicted by demons. And they responded by begging him to leave their region. And they did so because they loved their pigs. They preferred their economics to Christ. And they thought that was more. But it was far less, right? Infinitely less. What this passage teaches us and warns us against is that preferring anything to Jesus is choosing what is less valuable. We are finally at the end of Matthew chapter 8. We've been here 
a while walking through these stories. This chapter has unpacked some of the biggest themes in the Bible, which is some of the biggest themes in the universe. We have seen Jesus' power and his authority and his compassion and his saving grace. We have seen him heal people. We've seen him command weather. We've seen him cast out demons. He's done that already. We've seen him We've seen him show compassion to the sick. We've seen him make clean the unclean. We've seen him save the disciples. These are gigantic themes. And I I think they all kind of merge together in the story and they demand a response from us. If you'll you'll note here, all of these narratives, they come together in Matthew chapter 8 and there's one big response at the end. It's tragic. But it is the response of the people. They begged him to leave. This is who Jesus is. This is what he is like. This is what he does. And the question I believe that that we have to ask is, what will we do with him? Will we trust in him? This one who has this power and this authority and this grace, will we prefer him above all else? I think those are the questions that this passage demands for us to ponder. So the, the context of this story is that Jesus and his disciples had crossed the Sea of Galilee. It was a rough crossing, really rough. You remember from last week, we talked about that. You can go back and listen to that sermon if you'd like. Um, this, a storm developed. The, the disciples believed they were perishing, but Jesus calmed the sea, rebuked their unbelief. And now we have, they have landed in the region, in, a, in, in this town, near this town called the, the, where the people called the, um, Gadarenes lived. And Jesus encounters these two demon-possessed men. Now let's think for a moment about these men, okay? It's a very interesting story. There's a lot of mystery here, a lot of difficult things to understand, but there's a lot of things we can understand. So let's think about these two men. But one note before we do. If you compare this same account with the other gospels, so this is in all three gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke. It's in those three gospels, rather. Uh, if you compare it, you'll notice that the details in these and these stories differ a little bit from like in Matthew and Mark and Luke. Specifically, Mark and Luke have one guy mentioned and Luke has, I mean, and Matthew has two. So Matthew, as you can see here, he says there's two men who are, who are um, possessed by demons and Mark and Luke only mention one. Now, is that a contradiction? I mean, how does that work? There's other like discrepancies like that and people are quick to call contradiction. Is that a contradiction? It's not a contradiction. Uh, the difference is because Mark and Luke are coming at the same story from a different angle than Matthew. And they highlight different aspects. Both of those accounts seek to emphasize the transformation of one of these men. We don't, we don't have any of that information in Matthew. But both of those accounts really press into how God, through his grace, through Christ, in this event, transformed the lives of one of these men. He ends up wanting to follow Jesus. He wants to be his disciples urging him to let him get in the boat with him and and go with him. He wants to follow Jesus and become his disciple, but Jesus tells him to stay in his hometown and be a witness to what God's done for him. And so he goes around and the region and he's telling people what God has done, God's grace to him in Christ and he glorifies God. And that's the angle Mark and Luke emphasize and it's an important angle. Apparently the other guy who was demon possessed had a less standout response and neither Mark nor Luke mention him. 
So the difference is complementary, not contradictory. You know, there's a reason why police, when there's a crash, interview everyone who saw the crash, right? Because different people are going to give different details based on their perspective, their angle and all that stuff. Like one guy's going to say, that driver was going really fast. And another one was gonna, will say, he didn't use his turn signal. And yet another might mention that person was texting as they were driving. And the composite picture, like one guy didn't say everything, but the police can put those together and get a composite image of what happened, right? The guy was going really fast, didn't use turn signal, and he was texting, and he caused a, he caused a crash. In a similar way, these are complementary accounts, not contradictory. We, we, we should see Matthew as adding a perspective to the narrative that Mark and Luke choose not to emphasize. And together we have a good picture of what happened. Now, what was life like for these two men? These two demon-possessed men. For all the mystery in this passage, and there is a lot of mystery, it also makes it clear the destructiveness of evil. All three of the Gospels highlight this. Verse 28 says that these men were so fierce that none could pass by. So they were violent, dangerous men because of the demons that had invaded their hearts and lives and minds. They were dangerous men and they were harmful both to themselves and their community. Mark and Luke add that they didn't wear clothing anymore. So they're not even living like people. They're, they're naked, running around in the hills. They didn't live inside of a house. They lived in tombs. Just imagine how nasty, how disgusting their lives were of these two men. It was very dark for them. For safety, the townspeople at various times had attempted to put them in chains, right? Like, because they're dangerous, they're assaulting people. As they walk along that path, they tried to chain them up. But these people became so strong by the dark spirits that were in them that they were able to break the chains and free themselves And they would cry out loudly at night. I mean, just imagine this, you know? This unsettling cry of these men in the middle of the night, crying out. You could hear it from your house, perhaps. And Mark tells us that they were cutting themselves with stones. And so they were harming their flesh all of the time. My point is that there's nothing romantic about their plight. This is a miserable life for these two men. These men are slaves to darkness. They were very dangerous, both to themselves and to others, anyone who would pass by. And I just want us to note the the plight of these men and the darkness that we see in them. This is a miserable situation. These men were possessed by many demons. It might be helpful to mention that outside of the Gospels in the time of Christ, there is little in the Bible about demon possession. Little. That is, when a demon takes possession of a human host, there is very little, or maybe none, I mean, depends on how you read a few of the accounts that I read this week, in the Old Testament about demon possession, and very little after the Gospels. And that's likely because, that, and I, what I mean by demon possession is demons taking, like, control of their host. And that's likely because during the ministry of Jesus, this was a fruit of an unusual uptick of evil intended to counter Jesus's ministry. And now that's not to suggest, I, even though that's, that was true, like, the, you know, you don't have much after this, you don't have much in Acts, you don't have much teaching on it in the New Testament. Um, you have a, the accounts in the Gospels, you don't have much before that. 
And although that's true, that's not to suggest that the danger of evil spirits or the devil is not real or genuine. 1 Peter 5.8 tells us that the devil prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. So I don't want to suggest to you that it's not a clear and present danger. The danger is very real. But this kind of thing, this open possession was more common as Jesus completed his first earthly advent. And I believe that's because these days were big days. The son of God had come and he was about to put the nail in the coffin of the devil forever. Let's not miss though how dark the plight of these two men were and the harm that they were causing to themselves and to others. This was awful. Now, what can we tell from this account about demons? I mean, what, what light, or <laughs> ironic to use that word, what, what information does this give us about demons? Interestingly, Jesus' interaction is not with these two men, but with the demons. He's actually talking to the demons, not to these men. The demons are the ones talking, and you can see that clearly in verse 31. The men themselves apparently had no control over their faculties. They were completely taken by these evil spirits, these fallen angels, is what demons are, these fallen angels whom God had created for good, but who had rebelled against God with Satan and now were in opposition to God. Let's consider what these demons knew because that's what we can tell about this, them. We can tell that they knew a few things. Of course, we're not doing that because they're a trustworthy source of information. Jesus wouldn't let them testify because they were not a trustworthy source of information. Jesus teaches that that Satan is the father of lies. We don't don't go to him for truth. He mischaracterizes God at every opportunity. But it is interesting to consider what exactly these these spirits knew. And that comes out in how they talk to Jesus. So here are four things the demons knew. And then I'm going to make an interesting observation about how that knowledge worked in their lives. First, they knew that Jesus is the Son of God. That's how they address him here. They recognize in Jesus the Son whom the Father had sent into this world to bring redemption. They they knew without a doubt, lots of people were doubting, they 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 knew who Jesus was. He is the Son of God. And again, we don't take them as our solid source or our rock-solid witnesses. It's like listening to hardened criminals tell us, what happened? We have much more trustworthy sources. God himself reveals who Jesus is to us. But we know that he is the son of God. We know that what they knew was right. He is God who took on flesh. Jesus is God who was born in Bethlehem. He is God who was sent by the father to do the work of atoning for our sins on the cross and defeating death in the resurrection. Demons don't reveal this information to us about Jesus, but it is interesting that without a doubt, they knew it to be so. The second thing they knew is that they don't share anything in common with Jesus. That's the question they lead, that's what the question they lead with tells us, right? What have you to do with us, O Son of God? Literally, the Greek says, what to us and to you? And I think that means that they, sh- they, they are expressing this thought that they share no common ground with Jesus, the Son of God. Darkness has no common ground with light. Light expels darkness. Good exposes evil. They have no shared values. 
One side was opposed to God and opposed to all that is good and right and beautiful. And on the other side, there is God who is all good. Nothing in common between the two. Third, these demons knew their ultimate fate. They, they throw that in there in their question. They throw that little bit of knowledge in their question about Jesus's intentions. They say in verse 29, have you come to torment us before the time? Don't miss that. They knew. They knew that their days of freedom and havoc wreaking on this earth were numbered. They knew that God had appointed a time when they would certainly be tormented. And they make their desperate plea to Jesus. So they're, they're, they're begging Jesus and the grounds upon which they are begging him is that they believe that the time, their time had not yet come. They know their ultimate faith, fate. Later in Matthew 25, 41, Jesus will allude to that fate as a, as a warning. And it's a warning for us to not be included with them. In Matthew 25, 41, Jesus said, then he will say to those on his left, depart from me, you cursed. Into the eternal fire, listen to this, prepared for the devil and his angels. That's the time that these demons are referring to. They know that God has prepared an internal fire for them because of their rebellion against God. They know what their ultimate fate will be. A time of torment was indeed coming. The fourth thing they knew is the absolute authority of Jesus. Or I could say it like this, should say it like this. They knew the absolute sovereignty of Jesus. That's clear in this passage. They are clearly under Jesus's absolute authority. Note that they even need his permission to enter pigs. In fact, this text says that they beg him for that permission. You know, the pagan idea that there is good and that there is evil and that they're like on equal footing is totally foreign to reality as it is revealed to us in the scripture. God is the God and Satan are not equal foes. They're not. God is the creator of heaven and earth, including the spiritual realm. He, he reigns sovereignly over all of the universe, even over the spiritual forces that are opposed to him. For sure, these demons, God is sovereign, and these demons are responsible for their actions. They do their evil because they genuinely want to. They love evil. They love to harm people. They love to harm others. They love to destroy. They love to tear down. They love to oppose God. They will. That's their will. They will to oppose God. And they're responsible for that will. They will be judged. But it is God who reigns over all. You know, this comes out most clearly for us, this understanding of how how, how the spiritual realm works with God as sovereign over all in the book of Job. And it's difficult. It was difficult for me to read this passage without thinking about Job. In Job, similar story. Satan comes before God and desires to undermine God's work in this world, right? And in people, and he must ask permission from God. He asks permission from God to harm Job. He, he cannot act, that's, that's what that tells us, he could not act against Job without God's permission. And that's got to be comforting to you. He cannot act without God's permission. God then grants that permission, sets specific limits to Satan, 
to his freedom to afflict Job. God had his purposes, Satan had his. Satan's desire is to bring harm and destruction. He wants, to, he wants Job to curse God. God's purposes in that amazing story is to test Job and ultimately reveal himself to Job in a greater way through his suffering and by extension to reveal himself to us. Job passes the test, right? He never curses God, even though Satan takes nearly everything away from his life, even his health. Job still says, blessed be the name of the Lord. God is sovereign, not Satan. These demons knew that. Satan knows that. So they knew these four things, okay? They knew that Jesus is the son of God. They knew that evil and good have no common ground. They knew that their ultimate fate, what their ultimate fate would be. And they knew the absolute sovereignty of God in Christ. And yet, and here's the observation I want to make. And yet, they still did not believe him. They still did not trust him. They are not saved. They did not have faith in him. They are not saved for knowing all of those true things about Jesus and about God and about the universe. On the contrary, even knowing that, they are doomed. James 2.19 says it this way, you believe that God is one, you do well. Even the demons believe and shudder. I mean, indeed, they do shudder. They're shuddering here. They're begging Jesus. They're, they're shuddering in our passage, but they're not saved. And the point I want to make with that is that it is not knowing things about God and about man and about Christ and about the Bible that saves you. Not knowing alone. You can know stuff in a way that doesn't save you. It is trusting in Christ that saves a person trusting. These demons knew some serious theology and much of what we can discern about what they knew is true. And yet they are doomed. Their time is coming. One concern I have pretty much every Sunday, but this, this Sunday morning is that there are those within the hearing of my voice who also know serious theology. They, who also know many true things about God many things that are right and good, much about the Bible, but who are not trusting in the Christ who saves us from our sin. I hope it is more than knowledge for you, friend. I, I, I pray this morning that your confidence and your hope in life and in death would be in Jesus alone and his death on the cross in your place and his defeat of death through the resurrection. It is not knowing things. It is not knowing things that saves you. It is trusting a person that saves you. It is trusting Christ. So I am not asking if you know things. And you know, it's important to know things. You've got to know right things, to believe right things. But the demons shudder at these realities. And I'm asking you if you are trusting in Jesus Christ alone today. Do you know Jesus in a way that is different than the way that demons knew Jesus? Okay, so these demons know about know that Jesus is about to heal these two men and they're fearful of what judgment he will sentence them to. And so they beg him. This is so interesting, right? They beg him to enter pigs, a herd of pigs. Mark, I think, tells us that there's 2,000 of them. So you guys who have lots of livestock, picture this. 2,000 pigs in a herd, a ways off from them. 
and they ask if they could enter these pigs. Now, that just a side note, this makes it clear that this is not a Jewish community, right? And we know that because this, lar- you know, this large herd of pigs, pigs are unclean animals to law-fearing Israelites. So these are Gentiles. These two men who are possessed by demons are likely Gentiles. These townspeople are likely Gentiles. They are the nations, as it were. I think this is a glimpse that God is showing us of his saving grace that goes to the nations through Christ. Now, there are things we know about the spiritual world and things we do not know. There are things that are revealed to us in the Bible that we know and we can know about the spiritual realm, and I've mentioned a few of those already. But then there are things that we do not know. We do not know, for example, why the demons made this request. It's, I, I don't have an answer for you. Why they, decide, why they asked that. Lots of speculation. Maybe they thought that Jesus would agree because the pigs were unclean. Therefore, he, they thought that they would make a suitable host for unclean spirits. A lot of people think that. Maybe it was to undermine Jesus' ministry in the area. Maybe they have quickly hatched a plan to turn the town against Jesus by destroying this herd of pigs. That's actually what I believe. That's what I think. I think the account kind of plays into that or supports that. They knew that if Jesus' presence negatively affected their economics, they would turn on him. That's my assumption or guess. Or perhaps as many have suggested, I read many commentators that said that they hated being, demons hate being without a host And that's what they fear most. And when they'd be cast out, they'd fear not having a host to torment. Most of the commentaries I read think that, but I don't know. The bottom line is that we don't know this. It's not made clear to us. And our speculation is only so helpful. Here's another thing we we, we don't know. What happened to the demons when the pigs drowned? Right? Like they drowned the demon. Did they drown too? I mean, they're spirits. They, They don't need to breathe air. Did they, did they go to the abyss to wait the final judgment? Maybe. Did they, did they flee in search of other hosts to torment? We don't have the answer. It remains a mystery to us, and that's okay. It's okay that we don't know everything. Uh, here's another thing we don't know, and, but we have an idea here, but these, again, this, this is too high for us to know. We, do, we don't know why Jesus granted their request. Why did Jesus agree? Why did he say go? I think I have an idea of why, and I think the story kind of plays out. Let me rule one thing out, and then give you what I think, and then why I think it's so. The idea that we should rule out is that Jesus is somehow showing mercy to these demons. He was not showing them mercy. There's no evidence that he's showing them mercy. Some, some people wrote that that I read this week. Their fate is sealed. Their end is destruction. Jesus does not love them. Jesus does not love them. It is not an act of mercy to these demons that Jesus commands them to go. It is, however, an act of mercy to these two men and to these townspeople. God is showing mercy in this account, but make no mistake, it is to people, not spirits. So we can rule that out and make this educated guess as to why Jesus allowed the demons to go destroy a herd of pigs. By the way, you know, they destroy this herd of pigs. I mean, that's, that's really interesting. They, did they mean to do that? Or they pigs just freak out? I, I so many things we don't know. But here's what I do know. Evil destroys. Demons destroy. 
They were destroying those two men. So it's no, no surprise that they destroyed these, these pigs. Sin always destroys. Evil always destroys. Always. Jesus knew that it would not be good for those pigs. He knew that they would be destroyed because that's what evil does. I mean, sovereign, knows, omniscient, knows everything. But he also knows that's what evil does. Evil destroys. We have this weird idea about our sin. Whatever particular darkness that we are affectionate to in a particular moment, we think it will bring good to us. We find it attractive because we think it will be good. Or maybe we just think it will be neutral. You know what I mean? Lots of Netflix decisions are made because we think it'll be neutral. Like it's not going to harm us. It just won't be good for us. Evil is not neutral. Ever. This is what evil does. Always. These evil beings opposed to God destroy and harm and kill. Evil always does this. To co-opt a popular line, really old now, evil is what evil does. But back to my, my thoughts about why Jesus allowed demons to enter into the pigs. It's educated, this guess of mine, this thoughts of mine, by the book of Job and by the way this account ends and the way that it is written, by the way the townspeople respond and the way that that is all recorded. So, again, by the book of Job. Job's test was simple, right? Just going back to that. Satan posited that if he were allowed to take everything away from Job, most of his family, nearly all of his prosperity and wealth and his health, then Job would, quote, curse God to his face. Remember that? Here, here's how it's recorded for us in Job 1, 9 through 11. Then Satan answered the Lord and said, does Job fear God for no reason? Have you not put a hedge around him and his house and all that he has on every side? You have blessed the work of his hands and his possessions have increased in the land. But stretch out your hand and touch all that he has and he will curse you to your face. That's what Satan believed. So God granted permission to Satan to touch Job in this way. Satan went out and he severely took from Job. Read the story. It's gobsmacking. Yet, instead of cursing God, Job blesses him. You remember what he said, right? In the, in the midst of his loss, the Lord has given, the Lord has taken, blessed be the name of the Lord. And in all these things, Job did not sin or curse the Lord. God granted permission to Satan as a way to test Job. Would Job prefer his family and his wealth and his health to God? Or would he prefer God? Would he love God who is God and for whom God is? For Love God for who God is? In a similar way, perhaps, it was that Jesus, that's why Jesus was allowing these requests of the demons. Maybe he was testing the townspeople. Sure, go around healing people and people will love you. Crowds will gather, people will follow you, they'll bring their sick to you. But what if the people at once would see your healing mercy on one side, your grace to these men and to the town, but also feel in their economics the cost of that? What if the people at once would see your healing mercy by restoring these two men to health and life again and feel a tremendous economic loss? Would they love you then? 
or would they beg you to leave their region? Maybe Jesus allowed this request of these demons who then go on to destroy this herd to demonstrate that the people of this town love their stuff more than they loved people. Like these two men who were healed. And even more than they loved Jesus. They loved their economics more than they loved God. Verse 34 says that all of the town came out and they begged Jesus to leave. The swine herds had ran and told the people what had happened. You can almost picture it, right? I mean, they're in charge of this herd, right? They, they got to give an account what happened. They run to the town to tell people what happened. I mean, it's a, a freaky thing. They ran down into the water, drowned. They don't do that naturally, but they did that and they went and they had, they understood what had happened and that these two men were healed, that they were, these demon possessed men were, were cleansed. And so they went and told him, they, they said, it says, especially, Right? And behold, this right before that, let's see, verse 33, the herdsmen fled and going into the city, they told everything, especially what had happened to the demon-possessed men. They told everything. And hearing all of that, they came and they begged Jesus to leave. We don't want you here, Jesus. We don't want you here if it means we can't have our pigs. We're afraid. We're afraid of the costs. We're afraid of your power. We're afraid of you. Leave. I, you gotta, you gotta feel the weight of this. There are these two men who were possessed by demons, causing great harm, well known, and now they're normal, dressed. And the people begged Jesus to leave. They literally preferred their pigs to Jesus. They wanted Jesus to leave. Jesus, who heals and cleanses and brings to life, to. He brings life to men who knew only darkness. They wanted him gone because their herd was destroyed. They wanted their 50 bucks. Not the promise of what is infinitely more. And I think that begs the question to us. How do we respond? What do we prefer to Jesus? What do we love more than him? And to this question, I think our actions and our priorities speak louder than our mere words and professions. What you prefer most comes out in your priorities. Do you prefer money or comfort or pleasure or sports or achievements? Do you prefer your own sin to Jesus? You know how you know? I mean, you want to know how you know if you're preferring your sin to Jesus? Are you willing to abandon that sin for Jesus? Or are you willing to abandon Jesus for that sin? That's how you know. And if you're willing to stay in that sin, the answer is clear. We can see plainly the foolishness of that little grandson taking that $50 when we do the, when we do the math. And we can see plainly the foolishness of these people who preferred their pigs to Christ. And I think seeing that plainly is God's grace to us so that we might not follow their bad example. Jesus heals and restores and gives life. Jesus is the treasure to be had. Jesus is the one to trust. We can't trust our economics. You, you know that? You can't trust your herd, ranchers. You can't trust your paycheck employees, business owners. 
all of that can go in a day. But you can trust Jesus. You can trust God. You put all your eggs in that basket. He will not fail you. Jesus heals, restores, gives life to all who call upon him. I mean, even the nations, right? I mean, this is why we go to the nations with the gospel. These Gentiles were experiencing the healing and restoring grace of God in Christ. Yet they preferred the status quo, which was their pigs. You know, and it's interesting what they, were, what they really wanted. Like if they could push the button, the matrix button, red, blue, whatever, you know, if they could make it all go away and not have happened, they would still have those two men who were evil and possessed by demons, but they would have their pigs. And they wanted that. Oh, may we not make the same mistake. They wanted 50 bucks. And perhaps it was because where they were in their darkness, they could not imagine the goodness of infinitely more. But you can. We can. We know Jesus is better. We know he is worth our highest preference. We know he is worth our deepest affection and our greatest adoration. We know who he is. We have seen what he has done for us and what he is doing and what he will one day do. Here's how I think we should apply this. As you go through your week, I want to encourage you to consider your priorities and what those priorities say. And you know what I mean by priorities? The way you spend your time and your money and your effort, your energy. What those priorities say about your preference and your affection for Jesus. May the Lord grant you and me clarity and the grace to love what is infinitely good most. To love Jesus most. Not our stuff, not anything else, not our idols, certainly not our pigs. Let's pray. Lord, you are good in the way that you reveal yourself to us. You are good in the way that you show us things. You are good in this story, in the way that you have revealed their response as a bad example, the healing power of Jesus, and the infinite worth of Christ. Oh Lord, I pray for these. I pray for me. Lord, you know my heart. You know how prone to wander I am. You know how prone to, to prefer pigs I am. Oh Lord, I pray that you would help me to prefer you most. You are worthy of all my affection. You are worthy of my highest preference. May we trust in you, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen.